0: The degree of pressure as one descends underwater can be measured in atmospheres. Two atmospheres is double the pressure on the Earth's surface, three atmospheres is triple, and so on. At three atmospheres, a diver's body contains three times the typical amount of nitrogen. If they come up too quickly, the nitrogen will instantly expand to its normal size, forming bubbles inside the diver's body, causing pain difficulty breathing, or even death. This is called decompression sickness. That's why divers must slowly come up, a little bit at a time, so the nitrogen can safely expand and decompress. The deeper you dive and the longer you stay underwater, the more nitrogen gets dissolved in your bloodstream. Eventually, a diver's body becomes saturated with dissolved nitrogen, Instead of decompressing after each dive, saturation divers are shuttled to the surface in pressurized diving bells and then transferred into specialized chambers where they may stay at pressure while they eat and sleep so they are prepared for their next dive. This is possible because once you reach saturation level, your body can't absorb any more nitrogen no matter how long you stay under pressure. In March 1977, a single-anchor leg mooring system, called an SALM, was installed in the thistle oil field in the East Shetland Basin of the North Sea as a loading facility for oil tankers. It consisted of a buoy and riser connected to a gravity base on the seafloor. By January 1979, the buoy had become partially disconnected from the riser. The British National Oil Corporation had the buoy blown free of the riser with explosives and taken to Amsterdam for repairs, but the explosive charges damaged the riser. In April 1979, the riser was removed from the base by divers and taken to Bergen, Norway, to be repaired. Back in early 1978, Brian Masterson, an English businessman and engineer, co-founded in Fabco Diving Services LTD, a commercial diving company. The British National Oil Corporation awarded in Fabco a contract for diving services from the drill rig Golnair alongside the Thistle Alpha Platform. On June 18, 1979, the British National Oil Corporation contracted with InfabCo to reinstall the now-repaired SALM on its base in the Thistle Field. The MS Wildrake was a diving support vessel constructed for and owned by Anders Wilhelmsen AS, a Norwegian shipping company. It had a built in saturation diving system designed and built by another Norwegian company called Molleraden A.S. In May of 1979, Infabco began negotiations for exclusive rights to the Wildrake. In June and early July, Infabco personnel prepared the Wildrakes diving system for use so they could use a diving bell to allow saturation divers to reattach the SALM base. During this period, several significant alterations were made to the Wildrakes diving system. The swivel connecting the lift wire to the bell was replaced with a pair of shackles. The clump weight below the bell... Which served as a backup recovery system was removed to enable the bell to be launched over the side of the Wildrake rather than through the ship's moon pool. The bell's drop weights, another secondary means of bell recovery, were attached to the bell frame with nylon rope to prevent their accidental release. The accidental release of drop weights had caused fatal diving bell accidents in the North Sea in 1974 and 1976. The Wildrake Bell also had no bell stage to keep the bottom hatch out of the mud if the bell became stranded on the sea bottom. Basically, there were a lot of safety red flags. In late July and early August 1979, Wildrake divers reattached the SALM buoy to the riser and prepared the SALM for transport to the Thistle Field. On the night of August 7, 1979, Richard Walker and Victor Gwiel, who had been in saturation since July 29th, were lowered to a depth of 485 feet in the Wildrake diving bell to work on the reattachment of the SALM to its base. As the bell was lowered into the ocean, its transponder came loose, and the Wildrake deck foreman was ordered to cut it off. Shortly after 2.20 a.m. on the morning of August 8th, Richard, who had been working outside the bell on the SALM base, saw that the bell had become separated from its lift wire and was hanging at an angle by its life support umbilical. He reported the emergency and rejoined Victor in the bell, where the two divers closed and sealed the inside door. The bottom door, which opened outward, was left open and secured back to the bell frame. Wildrake dive superintendent Peter Holmes and dive supervisor Brian Reed believed that the umbilical was the correct secondary means of bell recovery in the system and AS had designed. and later denied this, and the umbilical had not been certified for bell recovery. Brian Reed attempted to raise the bell with the umbilical which was already damaged. The umbilical wheel on the ship's crane consisted of a rubber tire between two circular metal plates. The umbilical became jammed between the tire and one of the side plates. A further attempt to raise the bell on the umbilical using the ship's crane damaged the umbilical even more severely, and power and hot water to the bell were cut off. In response to a faint radio transmission from Richard and Victor, The Wildrake crew lowered the bell to the seabed at a depth of 522 feet. The diving vessel, Steena Welder, came alongside the Wildrake to render assistance in the rescue, but its diving system was undergoing repairs and had to be hastily readied for diving. Rather than having the Steena Welder recover the bell with its own crane, they elected to raise the bell with the Wildrake's crane. This necessitated that the Stena Welder rescue divers attach a guide wire to the bell, which would then be used to send the Wildrake crane hook to the bell, allowing the rescue diver to attach it to the bell with a wire sling. At 6 or 9 a.m., the Stena Welder diving bell entered the water carrying rescue divers Phil Casey Smith and Eddie Frank. Due to communication problems, failure of the lights on the Welder Bell, the absence of the Wildrake Bell's transponder, and the fact that the Wildrake crew had forgotten that they had moved the Bell away from the SALM base a few hours earlier, it took Phil nearly an hour to find the Wildrake Bell on the seafloor. At 7.55am, he saw Richard and Victor giving him thumbs up through the porthole, Phil spent another hour directing the recovery of the slack guide wire around the SALM base. Because the Stena Welder was not a dynamic positioning vessel, it could not be held in a constant position, causing the Stena Welder Bell to drag Phil around the seabed on his umbilical. At 9.02 AM, Phil attached the guide wire to the bell. The Wildrake began lowering its crane hook. But Phil now saw that Richard and Victor's movements had become very, very frantic. The crane hook came down too far from the bell for Phil to reach it with the wire slings attached to the hook. The hook was raised, had further slings attached, and was sent down again to Phil, who attached the slings to the Wildrick bell at 10.10 10 a.m. The Wildrake attempted to lift the bell from the bottom at a 45-degree angle rather than vertically, without a visual confirmation that the bell was clear to be lifted. During the lift, the bell wedged against the side of the SALM base, causing the wire sling to break. The end of the crane wire emerged from the sea at 12.20pm without the Wildrake bell, which was again lost. When rescue diver Eddie Frank relocated the bell, he saw that Richard or Victor had attempted to cut the ropes on the drop weights to allow the bell to surface, but that only one of the two weights was cut free. He also saw that the stranded divers were near death. With Phil and Eddie at the point of exhaustion, they were brought to the surface in the Stena Welder bell and relieved by divers Michael Mangan and Tony Slayman. At 6.16 p.m., Michael reconnected the crane wire to the bell. At 7.37 p.m., the bell was lifted out of the ocean. It was docked to the Wildrake saturation system, where Dr. Morvan White, who had been placed into saturation, examined Richard and Victor and determined that they were dead. The divers' autopsies in Aberdeen, Scotland, determined that they had died of hypothermia. On August ninth, 1979, Department of Energy inspectors and police boarded the Wildrake to investigate the accident. The Department of Energy inspector found multiple safety violations and evidence of negligence. Later, Richard's wife and Victor's family retained a San Francisco attorney who filed a wrongful death complaint to the United States on July 30th, 1980, against 10 defendants, including Infabco Diving Services and Molar Rod and AS. On November 28, 1980, Infabco Diving Services LTD was indicted on criminal charges in Aberdeen as the employer of Richard and Victor. At the criminal trial, which began on December 15, 1980, the diving company used what later became known as the Infabco Defense claiming that the divers were actually employed by a company called Offshore Coordinators LTD, which was located in a bank on Jersey and registered in the Isle of Man. On December 19, 1980, Sheriff Alistair Stewart ruled that the Crown had failed to prove that Infabco was Richard and Victor's employer. He therefore directed the jury to find Infabco not guilty. In May of 1981, the United States District Court in Los Angeles awarded compensatory damages of $475,000 to Richard's widow and daughter and $75,000 to Victor's family. This judgment, however, would never be enforced by the British court system. A fatal extant inquiry on Richard and Victor's deaths was held from May 11th to May 22nd, 1981, in Aberdeen. At the inquiry, Richard's widow, Jean Walker, read aloud the final entry from her husband's diary, written on August 7th, 1979, in which she commented, I don't even know if I'm going to get out of here alive. Sheriff Douglas, James Risk, issued his determinations on November 13th, 1981, he found that the removal of the clump weight contributed to the divers' deaths and that the absence of a bell stage indicated that the diving contractors were more concerned with speed than with safety. He also concluded that Richard and Victor could probably have been saved if the crane lift had not been ordered to continue without investigating the obstruction impeding the lift, which proved to be the SALM base. In October 1986, due to another lawsuit that took place in the United Kingdom, over $400,000 was paid to Richard's family and about $8,000 to Victor's family. The Wildrake, renamed the Falinto Perry, later became a submarine rescue ship in the Brazilian Navy. In May 2000, the Wildrake accident records in London were found to be missing.